Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone, and uh, welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Andreas Steno Larsen, sending to you live Wednesday, September 28th. After a um, another bizarre day in financial markets, we've had direct intervention from the Bank of England in the UK bond market to try and slow down the rising uh, interest rates in the long end of the yield curve. So today we're going to ask the question whether this mayhem in the British markets is a cannery in the cold mine for the rest of the world. And uh, with me to discuss that question, uh, I have uh, a friend of mine, a great analyst, uh, and um, a guy who follows this situation very closely, Darius Dale. It's good to see you. Andreas, what's up, brother? How are you? I'm good. Uh, I mean, it's been a crazy day uh, after this action in the uh, in the UK bond market. Um, so we've actually had a pretty material positive repricing of equities on the back of this intervention in the British bond market. What do you make of the situation, uh, Darius? Yeah, so I mean, it starts, it goes back to the what's been the, the key driver of asset markets this year, right? It's been, you know, the repricing uh, both on the short and long end of sovereign debt curves. Uh, we've seen central banks step away um, in terms of uh, being there on the demand side and also on the policy rate side actually trying to cause harm. But we're also seeing fiscal authorities continuing to march forward as it relates to fiscal expansion and, and, and supporting their populations uh, through this inflationary time that obviously folks like us would very clearly say they're causing, uh, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah, uh, let, let's have a look at what actually happened in the UK today. I think we can bring up chart one, Brian. I, I, I tried to sort of create a sketch uh, of, of what happened in the British bond market because um, early this morning, European time, uh, the rumors started circulating um, on a couple of pension funds being under pressure due to margin calls on uh, receiver swaps. So they have basically uh, received uh, fixed interest rates in swap agreements. And when the far end of the yield curve accelerates like crazy, which is what we've seen in the UK over the past couple of weeks, uh, these um, swap agreements, uh, they they come with a very negative market value. And that's why they've been asked to come up with collateral. Um, and the doom loop basically started from there. Uh, then the, the exact same pension fund started selling gilts to try and come up with cash as collateral in these agreements. The um, Yields started accelerating again. The British sterling came, came under pressure. Uh, and ultimately, the Bank of England had to step in with direct intervention in the yield curve. So, Darius, is this QE or what is it? I mean, <laughs> it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck. It's definitely a duck. I mean, how many times have we seen this before? I mean, I thought it was pretty um, interesting. Like, they made a big sort of a to do about the uh, the Financial Stability Committee of along the Bank of England being the sort of uh, the, the the committee that authorized this move, as opposed to the Monetary Policy Committee, which sets you know the policy rate and tries to sort of uh, engineer the price stability mandate. What difference does it make? <laughs> you know, like at the end of the day, the reason we have QE in the first place is because there is an excess 
of sovereign debt securities, of debt securities globally relative to the demand for them. And is obviously as a function of that, you know, that tends to uh, to weigh on broader capital markets uh, to the extent that the you know treasuries, you know, UK Treasury, US Treasury, Bank of Japan, or Ministry of Finance in Japan, et cetera, need to be capitalized. And so, you know, it's our opinion that, you know, to the extent that this program is not, uh, so I actually take a step back. I tweeted, <laughs> there's nothing is more permanent as a go as a temporary or transitory government program. So we should probably expect that this thing is probably not going anywhere, but let's just for all, you know, entertain them and say that they're going to allow this to roll off on October 14th. Well, what do you think happens on October 14th or you know, the days leading into October 14th? There's a fundamental supply demand imbalance on the long end of sovereign debt curves uh, globally. And unless there's, they're willing to come up with a solution um, that is more permanent in nature, then we're gonna continue to see rising bond yields, at least until we get to the point where uh, a recession is something that needs to be risk managed. Yeah, I, I think that is a really fair point, Darius. Um, in terms of the question that we asked initially today, whether this situation in the UK is sort of a cannery in the coal mine for other countries, um, what's your take on that? Could we face similar issues in the US and the rest of Europe um, in, say, one to three quarters from now? Yeah, we probably will. Um, you know, so you and I have talked on this program about uh, our secular inflation model, 42 macro, and how that model is, at least in the US, looking at isolating core PC as the dependent variable. It's suggesting that the trend, underlying trend of core PCE on the high end of the estimate range is somewhere just inside of 3%. Um, in terms of that that, that 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 transposition, and so the Fed's going to have an awfully hard time of getting inflation from let's say three percent to two percent. I think it's pretty easy to go from nine percent to let's say four or even three percent, but that last hundred to one hundred fifty, maybe even two hundred basis points is likely to be really really painful in terms of the the political the the the, the damage that they're going to have to do to the unemployment market in order to get it down to the levels that they desire. And so it's our belief that you know let's say when we get to that point a year from now, maybe, you know, 15 months or so from now, that they're going to have a very tough political choice to make. And, and just based on the reading the tea leaves across the globe, you know, the markets, the markets are going to force the, the hands of the central bankers. I do, however, you and I were talking about this earlier, is I do believe that Europe is probably next. I mean, you had some uh, interesting thoughts on the Italian elections and what that might look like uh, in a few months. Yeah, um, but uh, let's let's try and have a look at the situation in the U.S. first before we get mm -hmm. to to Europe. There is, um, if if we assume that um, the Federal Reserve will be sort of forced into supporting the U.S. Treasury market, how would that play out? I, I mean, we would probably need to see more mayhem in the U.S. market before they could actually be forced to step in, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, and this is this is the the point we make. Uh, Brian, if you can pull up slide thirty seven, we sent you uh, where we show the three month ten year yield curve. Um, that for those who are watching, that is the yield curve you should be paying attention to to understand if a recession is imminent and something that's actually a high probability event. The other yield curves give you kind of a general indication of should you be concerned about a recession, but this is the one that tells you um, uh, if it's actually going to come or not. And it's still you know around forty one basis points wide, so it hasn't fully it hasn't inverted yet. Uh, but obviously, as we roll forward in time, the Fed continues to hike interest rates and the lagged impact of monetary tightening starts to flow through the economy. This is something that could very well be inverted by, let's call it early next year. And so, you know, it's our belief that the Fed and other central banks effectively need to engineer a recession to bring back that demand component from the private sector to the long end of sovereign debt securities. I mean, one thing we've seen across the board is if you look at 
you know, 10-year uh, break-evens or five-year, five-year inflation swap rates across all these you know, major developed market economies, they're running at levels well north of where they were pre-COVID um, in terms of the, the trending rate that we observed uh, prior to COVID. And so, again, this is this is an issue. Um, there's a couple more charts I call out in terms of this fundamental uh, supply-demand issue as it relates to sovereign debt globally. Um, the first chart just kind of highlights, you know, central banks uh, stepping away. So slide 34, Brian, where we show uh, the G5 central bank balance sheet showing it in dollar terms uh, relative to the total equity market capitalization of the globe and relative to the, uh, the the market cap of the Bloomberg um, uh, Global Aggregate Index. Um, it's not the total stock of bonds, but it's we're just using that as a proxy. And what we've seen is that, you know, from a balance sheet perspective, you know, G5 central banks, this is the U.S., UK, uh, Eurozone, Japan, and China, you know, we've seen that uh, that balance sheet decline by roughly $4 trillion since peaking in February. And as a function of that, we've seen, you know, the stocks, uh, if you look at it on a market cap basis, you know, down to $91 trillion relative to $123 trillion in last November, bonds at down at $56 trillion in terms of overall market cap for that index, for that global index, versus $69 trillion uh, in June. You know, this there's a real kind of sucking, <laughs> if you will, of demand out of the system from that side of the equation. Well, that's only half the problem. The other half of the problem is the fiscal authorities are actually creating incremental supply. So that's uh, slide uh, 35 there, Brian, uh, where we show the deviation from the, the pre-COVID trend, the 2015 to 2019 trend in each of those select countries' uh, sovereign uh, budget balance as a percent of GDP. Um, so a positive uh, reading would indicate that the, the, the budget deficit uh, got tighter. A negative reading indicates the budget deficit got wider. And as you can see, U.S. at minus 96%, Germany at minus 390 basis points, or sorry, not, not 96 basis points, France minus 182 basis points, Italy minus 409 basis points, Spain at minus 146, and the UK at minus 147 or 167 basis points. The whole developed world is seeing its budget deficits widen as a function of this sort of uh, lurching left uh, with respect to fiscal uh, fiscal uh, policy. So uh, there's a real fundamental supply and demand imbalance. The fiscal authorities are giving you more paper, central banks are stepping back, and as long as we're not in a recession, particularly in the US, there's not really a lot of demand for, for these securities in the private sector. I think we can bring up chart three as well, Brian. Um, I've tried to sort of calculate the energy cost as a percent of GDP in, in Europe this year. And it um, it basically fits the, uh, the story that you just depicted for European uh, sovereign debt, because I mean, given the energy bill that we will be faced with this winter, um, it's quite likely that politicians will simply have to step in uh, and bail out uh, parts of the private sector as a consequence of these rising energy bills. And if we take a look at, at countries um, that we haven't talk, talked about yet, Germany, uh, just to take an example, 10% of GDP is the likely bill for energy in 2022. And that compares to levels just south of 2% in Wait, 2020. What? Yeah. 800 basis points? Yeah. That's Good the Lord. incremental increase yeah. in the cost of energy over a couple of years. And I haven't even uh, considered the risk of a falling GDP number here. Uh, I, I mean, uh, it's, it's just a crazy move. Uh, and I mean, the reason why the UK market started uh, uh, accelerating in terms of yields was probably that the UK administration decided to bail out this entire energy bill, right? Um, mm -hmm. So to me, it could be sort of a, a clear warning signal of what could be upcoming, upcoming in the rest of Europe. Um, the energy bill in the US is much lower than this. Let me just emphasize that as well. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I, I wanted to add a, a thing in relation to your G5 chart, Darius. Um, mm-hmm. Today we had action from Bank of England, uh, so direct intervention in the uh, yield curve. Uh, the Bank of Japan um, is still easing. Uh, the People's Bank of China is sort of in, ease, uh, in, in easing mode as well, uh, while the European Central Bank could be forced to buy bonds again already this winter. Maybe, let's say maybe. Then we have the Federal Reserve left, the most important of them all. I mean... Right now, we have interest rate hikes and bond buying at the same time in the UK. Could you imagine something like that happening in the US? No. Uh, the reason I say it's it's very likely that by the time we have that issue, uh, it's very likely the Fed will already be done hiking interest rates. You know, I think the the the, the, the if you look at uh, money market rates. You know, they're sort of split on December and February um, being kind of the last rate hike uh, for this particular tightening cycle. So it's unlikely um, that, you know, by then we're going to have that kind of uh, issue in the, in the in the Treasury market. And then there's other things that the Treasury can do. They've talked about they float this idea of doing a, a debt swap in terms of issuing bills to buy back longer term debt securities and kind of ease some um, some pres- pressure on the long end of the curve. So it's not clear to me that the Fed, just given how aggressive uh, the guidance has been from from Chairman Powell on getting inflation back to their two percent target. It's very unlikely that they would be so um, quiescent to to allowing that to occur at such so soon. Um, I could very easily see a scenario, however, next year where instead of um, you know if they op- have to opt for easing, and again we think this is probably a second half of twenty three story at, at, at the earliest could be an early twenty four story. If they opt for easing, it's probably going to come in the form of QE rather than in the form of, uh, or sorry, not even QE, just stopping the quantitative tightening rather than the form of, uh, of rate cuts. Because again, it's based on Powell's assessment of the dynamics to the, in the 1970s uh, inflation episode. It's, it's, the, it's the duration with which interest rates have to remain uh, restrictive, um, at least from their perspective, in order to get inflation under control. That seems to be the dominant variable driving the policy decisions they're making today. Mm-hmm. But uh, given what we've just discussed with a um, central bank in the UK now buying bonds directly uh, in the market again, paired with a Federal Reserve still very um, sort of convincingly telling us that uh, the monetary policy will have to be tighter for longer. We have a policy divergence gap that we haven't seen for decades, more or less, right? Uh, And obviously, we get moves in FX space as a consequence there is. What do you make of that divergence and the moves that we see in the US dollar? Well, I mean, the FX is the, is the channel, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's that's the release valve for a lot of this, you know, this incremental uh, pressure coming from fiscal authorities, um, and and the incremental pressure they're applying in, in indirectly or directly upon monetary authorities to sort of uh, to, to to acquiesce to their to their, to their demands. Um, you know, uh, one thing I found pretty interesting, and um, this is not good, but we saw uh, Brian Deese, who's the White House uh, economic um, uh, the, the economic council director or whatever, I forget this title, they all have too many titles, but uh, he's a, the, one of these important people in the White House on the economic side. And he came out and said this morning, hey, we're not even considering something that looks like a plaza accord, right? Um, and so, you know, I put up a chart, uh, Brian, uh, slide 33, 
uh, in that chart where we show um, the long-term time series of the dollar monthly candles on the DXY, that's the US dollar index, mostly Euro, Japanese yen, British pound, uh, and that. And as you can see, just in terms of the upper panel in that chart, you know, we're nowhere near the levels that, you know, cause the, 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 the plaza cord in terms of the strength in the dollar, not only in terms of levels, but in terms of the persistency of the rise. I mean, you go back to the plaza cord, the dollar is rising for five straight years in a straight line. You know, that's, you know, we, we, we were basically a year and 15 months into, uh, into a dollar bull market uh, from that perspective in terms of the, the lows we saw in the middle of last year. Uh, one thing that's also typically associated with currency interventions is high currency volatility. Central bankers, uh, fiscal authorities um, in terms of Ministry of Finances, they want to tamp down that volatility because that tends to be harmful for capital investment and capital flows, et cetera. And so if you look at 30-day implied volatility on the DXY, we're only at 9%. Now, that's that's you know, reasonably high relative to the recent past, but you know we were at 17% you know, right just ahead of the the, the Plaza Accord back in the in the mid 80s. And then lastly, on a year over year basis, you know, this is probably the one thing that is causing the most concern uh, amongst investors and policymakers is just the the speed of the, the ascent on a year over year basis. We're up 20 percent year over year. We were up 25 percent year over year in terms of the Plaza Accord uh, where we were in the mid 80s. But again, that was up 25 percent on a compounded five year uh, bull run in the dollar. So um, if investors are expecting to see, you know, uh, policymakers capitulate on their inflation drives and really start to bail out international capital markets, the global economy, I think we need to see a lot more pain, both economically and financial markets before we, we uh, before they have for that solution. In relation to the euro lack of the euro versus the US dollar foreign exchange rate, I wanted to play a soundbite for you from a discussion I had with uh, an Italian professor the other day. Um, and we have a discussion around the recent election in Italy leading to a right wing a wing coalition um, and the risk of um, fiscal largesse in the uh, Italian administration as a consequence of this election. So uh, let's listen to Andrea Palcinieri and uh, get back to this discussion on the energy side if you ask me then i can tell you my opinion not will change you will not have a lot of changes because at the end of the day it's very difficult that you can take some decision for example related to the cap alone you will have to join the european union in any kind of decision otherwise it will be a disaster for a single country so this is my perception. At the end of the day, a lot of public campaign, a lot of talks, but, uh, you know, I'm not sure they will do, you know, something without Europe. And this is from the energy side. But on the Italia side, I would say on macro side, then the public campaign told me that they want to spend. They want to spend a lot. Uh, think about the potential flat tax or uh, think about, you know, uh, they want to do a lot of investments. And so the public spending, I'm okay with that, but I'm, I am not sure that I have a lot of covering for that. And this is my, you know, what I'm thinking right now. So they win the public spend, but you know, the problem with the deficit and the uh, debt to GDP will be higher. On, I have also, to be honest, over the last three to four weeks, the same Giorgia Meloni uh, tried to, you know, reassure the market, telling them that we are not stupid and we well know that we need to stay within the European framework. So I do think that at the end of the day, they will make those decisions within the EU framework. Otherwise, 
you know, we go back to the uh, previous point and the two protection, you know, the TPI, <laughs> so the <laughs> two protect Italy mechanism, we all called it uh, in, uh, <laughs> in, uh, in Italy. <laughs> so the TPI instruments, you know, for the ECB could come in action. That's the point, Andreas. The entire interview with Andrea Palcinieri is already available at Real Vision for subscribers. And remember that we just launched the Make or Break series, a must watch if you ask me. But back to you, Darius. I mean, uh, Andrea's point here is basically that there is a clear risk that the new Italian administration will run a huge budget deficit. And ultimately, the ECB will have to step in again to save the Italian bond market. Um, we we obviously already touched upon this risk, but what do you make uh, of this risk in an FX perspective? Oh, I mean, it's obviously very <laughs> bearish. So let me let me start by saying, the, 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 I'm gonna borrow a phrase that I absolutely hate, but I'm gonna use it for this particular uh, discussion. But the end game for all of this is fiscal or monetary authorities, capitalizing fiscal authorities, to dig us out of this, you know, sort of supply deficit that we have, whether it be you know, commodities or physical goods or restructuring the, you know, supply chains, reshoring supply chains. We have a lot of big changes we need to get in, uh, we need to affect um, over the next, let's call it three, five, seven, nine years. And the reality is it's going to be very difficult to get the private sector to wrap its hands around a lot of these, um, these issues. And so ultimately the monetary authorities as much as you know, it doesn't make sense today with inflation at 9% in the US and Eurozone or north of that in, in the UK, that's where we're headed with all this. Now, again, you have to risk manage that as an investor along the way. You can't just put that trade on and expect to you know, make money on a 2029, uh, 2030 uh, outcome. But the reality is this is where we're headed. But so in terms of the, the very near-term dynamics of this, obviously, is more dollar strength. Um, if you think about you know, kind of what, might, what has to happen um, in terms of uh, you know, in terms of what could potentially happen on the on the uh, Italian budget side, which again, this is a this is a hypothetical, but very clearly we've seen this is a um, Christine Lagarde led ECB that very much is very still very still tethered uh, uh, to the um, to the concept of financial stability, and which is an implicit tethering to their to their implicit growth mandate. Um, you know, one final chart I I, I bring up is slide thirty six. Um, where you show we show um, the the G4 uh, X or G5 central banks X US uh, balance sheets uh, in their local currency terms, and one thing that's pretty different with respect to uh, the ECB's balance sheet um, is that you know it's still sort of you know, it's not really climbing, but it's not having the decline that we've seen you know with other balance sheets like the Bank of England, whose balance sheet peaked in, J in January, the Bank of Japan's peaked in uh, June, and the PBOC's peaked in February. So you know this might be a case where uh, the ECB is forced to abandon, and I think the market has already gotten to this point, which is the ECB is going to be forced to abandon its inflation drive uh, sooner than I think um, it, it, it probably wishes it's going to be able to. Yeah, I, I perfectly agree. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Have you ever experienced turbulence on a flight and wondered why? And you can see all the terrain around you. Uh, you've got no issue with visibility or anything? No, everything's peachy. Maybe you've sat on the tarmac for hours wondering why your plane isn't moving. Well, we're outside here. They're saying the ramp is closed. They won't let us park because of uh, Air Force One. Listen in on the conversations between pilots and air traffic controllers on the Air Traffic Out of Control podcast. Cybersecurity declaring an emergency. There's smoke in the cabin. I need to make a landing right now on 31 left. 
We have the most interesting, wild, and funny ATC recordings you will ever hear. Check out Air Traffic Out of Control wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Um, Darius, as always, we have a bunch of questions for you. Um, since it's been a crazy day in uh, in FX markets in particular, we have a lot of questions from from people interested in how to sort of shield oneself uh, against this this uh, volatility in FX space. Uh, I can say, as a European, I've shielded myself by having a lot of dollar positions throughout the year. It's been a sort of an easy hedge for me uh, from European soil. But when you look at this FX volatility seen from US soil, what do you make of that volatility? No, it's great. I mean, look, we said this in January on the show, US dollar cash, cash is king. Mm. And it's been, it's become increasingly king. Um, obviously, today, it's, it's taken a little breather. I mean, it was egregiously uh, overbought, whether you look at our probable ranges or, you know, longbow ranges or any ranges, you know, it's it was egregiously overbought. So, you know, a lot of what we saw in the last couple of weeks was, you know, in terms of Europe moving incrementally left in terms of monetary and fiscal policy, uh, Fed getting incrementally tight in terms of monetary policy, all that stuff got, got very much priced in from a short-term tactical perspective. But the trend is going to remain intact until the market is comfortable with the idea of a U.S. recession. And it's not. And going back to the yield curve uh, chart we discussed, but if you just look at the data, I mean, yesterday was a, a slap in the face to anyone uh, you know who spends you know six seven hours a day on Twitter talking about the next crisis. You know, we had consumer confidence rip, a capex rip. You know, it was a three by we cap core capital goods new orders in the U.S. For those of you who aren't paying attention to the data, are up twelve percent on a three month annualized rate of change basis and accelerating. Like that, that, that's the least recessionary data point I've heard in months. <laughs> you got PMIs in the in the low to mid 50s. If you look at the ISMs, like all the stuff that people should be paying attention to, but they're not paying attention to because they spend all day on Twitter. You know, this is a U.S. economy that, on a three-month annualized basis, looking at monthly statistics, nominal GDP is at around nine, eight to nine percent in the U.S. economy. We're going to find that out on on Friday, um, and we're, we're going to update on that on Friday in terms of the PCE spending data. Now, all the data is slowing. But we're so far away from levels that would indicate this economy is about to fall off a cliff. You know, obviously the labor market being kind of like the prime suspect in this whole discussion. So I think we just need to move forward in time for a lot of these bear, you know, for lack of a better phrase, bear porn narratives to come to fruition. They're probably going to come to fruition. They just don't have to come to fruition today or tomorrow or next week. This is going to be a long elongated process. You know, we could be talking about a lot of the same themes a year from now um, if you really, you know, we want to be honest with ourselves. If if we assume that the U.S. dollar will keep strengthening, um, at which point do you think the U.S. dollar turns into an issue for the U.S. equity market? I mean, we know that some of the companies have earnings abroad, right? So is a strong U.S. dollar an issue for the U.S. equity market in general? Uh, yes and no. I mean, look, it's it's obviously an issue for for earnings, but you know, one thing, two things. I've noticed this throughout my career. Maybe not. Maybe it's not the case at this particular juncture because the you know, Dow is a little bit stronger. Um, it's about almost as strong as it's been in, in in nearly twenty years. So this might be out the window. But generally speaking, investors, you know, write off currency fluctuations when it comes to earnings, both good and bad. Um, so that tends to be the case. But one thing I would call out with respect to near term earnings not 2023 earnings. I think the real earnings discussion should be focused and centered around 2023 because I think that's where a lot of the pent up slowing of growth to below trend status um, is likely to occur. But in between now and then, you still have nominal GDP running at eight to 9% 
employment cost index running at 6%, that's a pretty healthy spread. It's almost a record widespread. We're coming off of a record widespread um, in terms of uh, corporate's ability to sort of shield their earnings and shield their cash flows you know, from some of these uh, some of these inflationary dynamics. So uh, that's a long winded way of saying if you're if you're bare on earnings, it's probably not going to be Q3 earnings season that gets you paid. It's probably going to be Q1 or Q2 earnings season of 2023. We have a couple of questions coming in uh, again on uh, what happened in the Baltic Sea yesterday with the blow up of the uh, Nord Stream pipelines. Uh, and uh, I mean, Darius, um, I, I, I want to pick your brain on on how you view this situation from from an energy perspective. Uh, we've we've obviously seen um, almost a landslide in most commodity prices since midsummer. Um, but what do you make of this sabotage in the Baltic Sea? Is it something that we should worry about um, in general? Yeah, I mean, look. So it's it's we've seen the, the 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 proposed response to this from the European Council, which is more Russian sanctions. They're floating that uh, the idea to cap Russian uh, energy exports, et cetera. Uh, I don't know how that's going to work out because again, we've seen um, some of these side deals get orchestrated, whether it be Russia, China, Russia, India, Russia, Pakistan, uh, et, cetera, et cetera, Russia, Iran, in terms of um, you know kind of skirting some of these sanctions. Um, you know, at the end of the day, this goes back to the comment I made you know earlier, which is. We're moving to a multipolar world where it's going to be increasingly every country for themselves, every region for themselves, every block for themselves. And, and ultimately, this is just a, another step in that process. Now, it's not all bad, but at least in terms of where we are today, not really understanding what that world's going to look like from a, from a final state perspective, there's still a lot of uncertainty, and that uncertainty is going to keep volatility high. And, it's in, and in the context of a negatively sloped net liquidity function, it's not good. We're not in a good situation for asset markets. It just doesn't mean we have to go to, let's say, 3,000 on the S&P or 13,000 on Bitcoin in the next couple of months. This could be something that takes you know another six to nine months to play out, is all I'm saying. I'd actually say that Bitcoin has been surprisingly stable in the past couple of weeks relative to the mayhem that we've seen in, in, in other asset markets, at least when you look at it from a volatility adjusted perspective. Um, final question from the audience, uh, which is a really good one, uh, if you ask me. We've had direct intervention, um, let's say, in the 10-year point and in the 30-year point in the UK yield curve today. Is this a signal that we've peaked in terms of 10 and 30 year bond yields in the US? Oh, no, uh, no. It's, it's it's unlikely to be the signal. Now, again, we, we put this in our research, we talked about this, said, hey, look, when we kiss 4%, which we called for, investors are gonna come out of what work and try to buy the dip. It's the equivalent of like, you know, hitting 4,000 on the S&P, right? Everyone's gonna, you know, every, every, every long-term bull on US stocks or, you know, a person who thinks there's value in the long end of the curve is going to see that level and get excited about it. But a lot of the structural dynamics uh, underpinning that supply and demand imbalance that we talked about earlier in the show are still very much in place. Um, and it's especially if they, if the UK, you know, sort of this, this is programmed actually does prove to be temporary and it's gone by, you know, October 15th. Now, again, I don't, I don't believe it's gone anywhere <laughs> because, you know, again, there's nothing more permanent uh, than a government program, than, than a temporary government program. <laughs> um, but anyway, but let, let's say that removes some of the selling pressure, or at least so that alleviates some of the supply and demand imbalance. The reality is there's still going to be supply demand imbalance associated with growth broadly slowing across the developed world, fiscal authorities getting incrementally more sort of, you know, kind of convicted 
and that they need to do something to respond to the growth slowdown. Um, and ultimately, and, and, and obviously we were negative on asset prices, risk assets on a trading basis. And so as asset markets continue to, you know, uh, demonstrate volatility and, and, and you start to see the level of general concern and angst and anxiety rise, fiscal authorities are going to want to do even more. Um, and so that 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 this likelihood that we still are in this scenario where there is a supply demand imbalance in the bond market until a recession, particularly in the U.S. economy, is something that the bond market is, is actually concerned about, because I would argue it's not that that supply demand imbalance is going to persist. So, you know, are we going four or five on the U.S. tenure? I don't know, but I would I wouldn't I wouldn't rule it out. I, I certainly wouldn't rule it out because, again, a lot of the dynamics that are underpinning this massive up move we've seen in bond yields that's likely to continue yeah this was another great discussion darius so let me try and and sum up a uh, a bit uh, towards the end here we asked the question initially whether this mayhem in uk bond markets could be sort of a cannery in the coal mine for the rest of the world and i think the two of us agree that the next target could be europe uh mainland europe and namely italy uh so yes uh this is potentially a cannery in the coal mine for other regions globally. But there is a region running, if not on, on all cylinders uh, still, then at least at, at a very decent pace, that is the US. So we shouldn't expect this to hit US soil anytime soon. And that's essentially the why the US, uh, why the US dollar is so strong against other currencies, because we have this massive policy divergence uh, as a consequence of this easing scene in the UK relative to a tighter for longer narrative by the Federal Reserve. Anything you want to add to that summary, Darius? Not at all, man. You're one of the best. That was awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us uh, once again today. It's always a pleasure to host you. Appreciate you, brother. Thank you. Uh, great. Thanks for everyone for tuning in. I know it's a lot going on out there, but you know we're going to be here for you. We're going to try to answer as many questions as we can and uh, catch you back here next week. Yeah, and uh, let's conclude with a meme as always, Darius. Uh, so I found a meme describing the current policy mix in the UK perfectly. Um, <laughs> the uh, Bank of England is now the only marginal buyer of the uh, UK sovereign debt. Um, so I guess this meme is the perfect way to reflect that. Uh, Didi, once again, thank you. And thank you out there for watching. Um, my colleagues will be back with more tomorrow in the Real Vision Daily Briefing. The Sri Lankan Prime Minister's house set alight. The first is authoritarianism. The second is corruption. The FOMC is strongly resolved to bring inflation down to 2%. Home builders are abandoning homes. Massive protests going on here. We're going to see a material impact here on growth and indeed on earnings, which my colleague changes happening and you can fear it. You're not going to stop it. There are really only two countries in Europe that have managed to maintain a replacement level birth rate, France and Sweden. This is the biggest bubble in the history of the world, and you have no clue. It's all herd mentality. It's the same as the property market. What happens over the next few months could define what happens over the next few years. So we want to make sure that you understand why. You've probably realized that we really have been listening to you. 